unless you are incredibly successful, you're worth nothing and you're not safe. That's all crap. We grieve hmm, for two reasons. We grieve for missing them, which is beautiful grief, if you think about it. And we grieve because we disagree with life. Purpose in the way it's defined in business books is very much a Western invention. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Have we got an episode for you today? This guy, I've wanted to get on the podcast now for around about a year. So I'm absolutely over the moon. He's coming to join us today. After a 30-year career in tech and serving as the chief business officer at Google X, which is Google's moonshot factory of innovation, he's made happiness his primary topic of research, diving deeply into literature and conversing on the topic with some of the wisest people in the world. Motivated by the tragic loss of his son, Ali, he began pouring his findings into his international best-selling book, Solve for Happy, Engineering Your Path to Joy. His mission is to help one billion become happier. One billion happy, essentially, is his moonshot attempt to honour his son, Ali. He's the co-founder of Unstressable, a mission to help one million people avoid stress, anxiety and burnout every year. I can't tell you how delighted, honoured and over the moon I simply am to have the amazing Mo Gaudat. Cue the music. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Mo, thank you for coming to join me. Absolute pleasure. You and I have got to know each other a little bit. So making sure that everyone that's listening and watching to this knows that we've met each other a few times and are working on a couple of projects together so totally. I want to give everyone a full understanding of that that's, that's after trying to meet for a year and a half yeah and <laughs> he's sending a message to the wrong number I, I actually have to say this was one of my happy moments in life because I do sometimes miss messages and you know when Alice was telling me that you've been texting me for a year and a half I felt really bad and then it turns out you were sending the messages to the wrong person <laughs> it was that moment of pride where like not my mistake. <laughs> Whoever was getting those messages must have been going, who the hell is this about? <laughs> then why is he angry that I'm not answering? <laughs> I don't even know you, pal. <laughs> so I'm there's me going, he's so rude. Because <laughs> I remember I met, I, I met Alice one morning here when you were living on the palm. Yeah. And we went for a walk one morning and I said, what, what, what's Mo's problem? Why, why was he? Oh, I'll speak to him, just message him. And uh, yes, anyway. Well, look, thank you for coming. It's really important for me to spend some time with you today because in all of the interactions that we've had since we've met, there's a lot that you say that makes me think harder um, and has has moved me, really. And so I just want to try and, for the benefit of everybody that that may not know who you are, try and give them an understanding of this incredible person that's sat in front of me right now. Um, a little bit about your journey, and then maybe we can dive into some areas. And and what I like to do, and I'm, I'm, I can only do this because it's the only way that I know how, is to use me as an example 
um, or maybe a case study or allow me to be the victim, whichever way you want to look at it, to try and answer some of the questions that that, that I have uh, that I know many people listening and watching may have too. T tough case then. But yes, uh, I, I have two very distinct backgrounds, two, two lives if you want. So I lived one life uh, that everyone dreams of living, which is uh, a corporate executive all the way to the absolute top. So I was at my uh, last job was chief business officer at Google X. Google X is the innovation side of Google. Uh, you know, we were doing what the, what is known as, as moonshots. So the very complex projects. Before that, I did uh, seven years at Google itself as the vice president of emerging markets. So half of Google's offices globally, uh, or operations actually, not just offices, uh, 103 languages, which in a very interesting way is a privilege that I don't think there is anyone else on the planet uh, that's been given that privilege to offer knowledge and information to 4 billion people, basically. So so that's, uh, that's half of my life. And then, uh, unfortunately, back in 2014, I lost Ali, my son. Ali uh, was uh, quite um, a pillar in my life. So not just my son, he was my son and my best friend. And he was uh, really my teacher in many ways, uh, which I think most of our children are, but he's, he was quite special. He spoke very little and he spoke very wisely. And he um, had a very simple surgical operation that went wrong. Uh, five mistakes in a row, uh, sadly, by the surgeon that were all fixable, all preventable, all fixable, and all, uh, he fixed them wrong, basically. And when you have five of them, uh, Ali was gone. So when Ali was gone, I think that was a very, very pivotal moment in my life. And I turned uh, to a new life, 2017. I published my first book, which I wrote, literally started writing, uh, fifth, 17 days after he died, I started to write about happiness, which became a mega bestseller uh, because I used logic and mathematics and very unusual things for such a soft topic. And then I, uh, pub you know, I publicly announced my uh, mission, which was One Billion Happy, uh, which is definitely not happened yet, but you know we're doing really well and it's my rest of my life. And yeah, f other books followed and uh, other efforts followed and other memberships and other uh, content online and so on. And that's become my life. So I've, uh, you know, if you, if you ask me, I think the uh, second life is a life of purpose that's much more in line with what um, everyone should be, should be dreaming of, I think. There's, there's three parts to that that I find really interesting. It's the pursuing the corporate career yeah. and being very passionate about it and, and, and into it in a big way and it consumed a big part of your life or most of your life, I would assume, chasing that yeah. corporate dream to a seismic shift happening when Ali passes away to a new life almost beginning. Yeah. Interesting, that. yeah. Totally begin. Yeah, totally from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. Now... When, when people get fired, sometimes they experience grief. Mm -hmm. When, when your your work came to an end at Google, that wasn't you being fired. That was you walking away from from that life. Yeah. Before we talk about Ali, did you experience any form of grief 
when you left that world that you'd known so well, inside out and upside down for so long? Amazing question. I actually, so I, 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 I reflected on that a lot because, you know, grief happens before, during and after, right? So, so you know, if you have someone who's dying, for example, there is a very long process of grief that you go through even before they leave our world, right? And I grieved Google before I left Google. Okay, so for a very long time, I attempted to convince myself that this is what I'm supposed to do. And believe it or not, I mean, the truth of the matter is I was never passionate about the corporate world. When I had my first child, Ali, and then my daughter, A, I remember these were two pivotal moments where the father in me basically kicked in and said, okay, I'm going to provide for them. And then I just, before that, I was a very chill carpenter. Uh, you know, I graduated with honors from engineering university and decided I love carpentry. So I started a carpentry workshop and did some very, you know, uh, specialized work. And I was very good at it. And then, you know, you get a, you get a child and then you say, okay, I'm going to go down that path. And you keep going down that path. You never stop to reflect, right? Uh, when, um, when I decided to leave Google, I decided to leave Google for two reasons. Of course, one was the success of One Billion Happy. And the other was a disagreement with not Google. I actually think still Google is a great place to be and they're doing great things for the world, uh, but with the pa passage of technology itself. And I think that technology is going down a path now where more tech is not positive for humanity. I think we've established just like my career running where more corporate world was not good for me anymore. I think our world is an, as, at a, as at a place with where more technology is going to harm us. It's going to harm us significantly. And I, I, you know, my second book, Scary Smart, was about that. And so when I left, uh, for the last six months before I left, I was grieving the idea of this is me dying. This is my whole identity gone. This is mm. my everything I know, and I'm so good at it, and money's pouring in. So why are you doing this, you stupid idiot? And uh, the day I left, I started to realize, oh my God, the freedom, the purpose, the, the, the ability to do things that I stand for, the ability to speak about things that being a very senior corporate executive, I didn't have the right to speak about. And then eventually, actually only three years ago, was the first time I felt that I cleansed from that corporate executive lifestyle completely. Because believe it or not, I was on a happiness mission, a one billion happy to spread the message to a billion people. I was, you know, working on stress, which you're very aware of. I was working on, uh, um, you know, scary smart and the message around artificial intelligence. And most of my life was the life of a creative, right? And to be a creative, you can't have 25 minutes meetings and five minutes uh, uh, change and then another five, uh, 25 minutes meeting. And my life was full of those. I was meeting people, driving agendas, you know, having conversations that are not the life of a creative at all. And, and then I finally came to a point where I said, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to have periods of concentrated work and periods of absolute nothingness where creativity kicks in. And so I started to, to design the idea of two working days a week. Uh, this is where I interact with the external world. Of course, the rest of the week I'm working harder, but I'm working harder on creative stuff. Uh, I started to do my 40-day retreat twice a year uh, where I completely disconnect from the world other than 40 minutes a day. 
and you don't imagine you can't imagine the productivity that comes as a result so versus the highly mechanized corporate life that we get to uh, perform with as much efficiency per second as possible there are other ways of achieving incredible things in my view more more valuable more impactful by not pushing ourselves that hard most people if if they leave the corporate world they lose the identity and and, yes. and and unless they grab hold of another identity or find another identity quickly it very often leads leads them to a place of despair worthlessness depression, yeah. depression everything else that goes with that and so and i've i've been on a journey and have experienced that myself so i'm 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 kind of acute, acutely aware yeah um, of, of where the identity is or where the identity is lost. You grieved for that period. Did you structure it in such a way so that you could move into the next phase of your life in an organized and calm fashion? Or did you find yourself having that that looking in the mirror moment saying to yourself, what am I doing? What on earth's going on here? I, I think you're spot on. Huh? I mean, the reality is uh, you find yourself. So I, I had two of those in, or three of those, actually. When Ali left was a defining moment because Ali was such a big definer of my who I am. And then I separated from my wonderful ex-wife. Uh, you know, lovingly, we, we, we uh, just couldn't make it past a year and a half after Ali left. And, and we've been together 27 years by then. So... You know, you identify by that very deeply. And then, of course, leaving Google. And there are one of two ways. And, and, you know, every one of those, you find yourself literally in the middle of the whirlpool in the ocean. And like, what are you doing here? Well, who am I? Why, why is this so confusing? Uh, and then when you really, if you take it intellectually or spiritually or emotionally or whatever, but you sit on it, you realize that it was never you anyway. Right, uh, and I wrote about that extensively on chapter four in chapter four of Soul for Happy, my first book, which I think was very eye-opening for a lot of Western mentality readers. Uh, that you're not any of that. You're not your title. You're not your car. You're not the way you dress. You're not your partner. You know we, all of those things that ha ha that are temporary in nature are not the core you. Because you know if you define yourself by your partner, who were you before your partner? Right. If you define yourself by your job, what happens if you get promoted, right? Does that mean, you know, uh, you, you, you become a different person or is it the same identity, but it's a different job? So where is the equality of that? Anyway, the truth is, um, after a few experiences that you could do in silence, really, you don't have to struggle, you realize that none of that actually matters at all. That the whole, I, I will be open and say that that problem of identity what I normally call a problem of, um, let's say, uh, luxury, that we have the luxury to think and ponder those things, that we, uh, you know, the whole idea of um, uh, purpose, in, in my personal view, and I know that will upset a lot of people, purpose in the way it's defined in business books is very much a Western invention to keep you buzzing on the hamster wheel. Okay, I don't believe that purpose should be a target that you set in the future and tell yourself, uh, you know, I will have achieved my purpose if I 
you know, impact those many people, or if I make that much money, or if I achieve that job, or if I create that product, that's all crap. Uh, because in reality, that means that you're going to be unhappy until you reach that point because you haven't realized your purpose. And then the minute you achieve that point, you feel empty. And so you need to set another purpose. So uh, basically, you're moving from unhappy to one moment of glory, 50 seconds at most, followed by another purpose or followed by despair, right? And and the reality of the matter is we're not any of that. We are, uh, which I think is very difficult for people who are driven to understand, we are the only real purpose of life is to live it, okay? To live it to your highest potential, to live it to your highest uh, abilities, to live it to your highest potential impact, right? But life, the purpose of life is to live, right? And if if you think about the Western way of always looking in a temporal manner and looking at the future and saying, oh, point X and that date, I need to be this and that, that idea of future planning hmm, is only happening inside your head because point X in the future is always a moving target, right? The reality is if you really want to succeed in achieving your purpose, your purpose is when you're born, you have 30 billion, uh, 3 billion heartbeats. That's the total, you know, average human number of heartbeats, 70 years life expectancy or whatever. Your highest purpose is to utilize each and every one of those heartbeats properly. Now ask me if selling a fizzy drink as the purpose of your life, uh, which takes 30,000 heartbeats a, a day or whatever, is that really a good use of your heartbeats? Can you really define your purpose as that? Can you really define your purpose as, uh, you know, I'm going to be the second most effective businessman from my country? Can you really define your purpose as I'm going to beat the other guy? It's just honestly, my purpose is I'm going to spend an hour with you. I'm going to make it the best hour I can ever make it because this hour will never happen again. That's it. Okay. What happens after this hour is when the next hour comes, right? Yeah. You do have practical planning. You have, you know, directional ambitions. In all honesty, if I waste this hour because of a directional ambition in the future, then I will waste the next hour on another directional um, uh, uh, ambition in the further future. And then you will look back at, you know, like Pink Floyd says, and then one day you, you find 10 years have gone behind you. No one told you where, when to run. You missed the starting gun, right? One of my favorite songs of all time is literally most of us who succeeded big in the corporate world, you look back and you go like, holy cow, where's, where's my life? What happened? Where was I? I was in meetings, okay? I was in aeroplanes, angry, frustrated, hmm? uh, 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 disgruntled with how inefficient the whole, whole world is. You know, why is this email four lines instead of 4.2? Like I told her, why did she omit that letter from, uh, from the, that word in that sentence? A waste of life, complete waste of life. We, we look at most people and understand their stress or their anxiety or their worries, and they're always based around something that has happened in the past or something that, that may happen in the future. Yeah. And so 
they, they, they say, why worry about stuff you can't worry about? Why worry about a problem that's not here today and all that yeah. kind of stuff? And it's easy, easily said, isn't it? But if you actually think about most people, if you were to sit and talk to most people, their worries or concerns are going to be about something they've done or something they haven't totally, done. Yeah. 100%. I mean, so I, um, chapter six of my first book, which is definitely one of my favorite three chapters I ever wrote, is about time. It's called The Illusion of Time. And, I, and in it, I make a very simple observation. So I, I, I use either science, mathematics, and logics, uh, logic. I don't really use research that much because you and I both know that I can find research that proves whatever I say. Mm -hmm. I, I, can, I can say this room is black and I find research that proves it, or I can say this room is white and I can find research that proves uh, proves it. It's it's just a question of vantage point. So I I either you know depend on science and 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 mathematics and logic, or I depend on the exact on the actual reader's observation. So I ask the reader to observe for themselves because if it's true for you, it's true for you. That's all we need to know, right? So I ask the readers to make a list of all emotions they can find out they they can feel. Hmm? And in, in the book, I list, I think, 137 emotions, if I remember correctly. And I say, look, every emotion has a positive or negative impact on you. It makes you feel good or it makes you feel bad. It has an anchor point. And an anchor point is where is that future, where is that uh, I, uh, you know, uh, emotion related to? So regret is felt right now, but it's anchored in the past. It's about something that already happened, you know. Anxiety is felt right now, but it's anchored in the future, okay? And you'll be amazed. Majority of all positive emotions, emotions that make you feel good, are anchored in the present. Majority, like 94% or something like that. Majority of all negative emotions, emotions that make you feel bad, are anchored in the past and the future, okay? So regret, anxiety, fear, shame, uh, you know, uh, worry, grief, all of the emotions that, that make you feel bad hmm, are future and past. Why? Because your brain is a survival machine. Your brain's job is to either look at the past and analyze it and say, uh, something went wrong there. Let's make sure this doesn't happen again by analyzing it. Okay? And when your brain looks at the past and finds something that went wrong, it alerts you not in the form of another thought, because you never really listen to your brain anyway. It's blabbering all the time. It alerts you in the form of an emotion to say, look, saying that to your friend hmm, will make you feel regretful hmm, uh, so that you call the, your friend and, you know, make amends. Hmm? So you feel remorse, you call your friend, you, call, you make amends, right? So your brain wants you to to do an action that makes your world safer. That's why you're looking at the past, Okay. Your brain wants you to look at the future and say, let me plan properly so that, you know, I don't make mistakes that affect my safety and survival. So your brain is mainly a survival machine, mm -hmm. right? The challenge is, if you think of it as a survival machine, think of it like a bit like a fire alarm. Hmm? When a fire alarm happens, you're supposed to verify, number one, if there is a fire, you know, right, get out of the building, then verify if there is a fire, and then take action. That's, you, that's exactly what your survival machine up here is trying to do. It's trying to tell you, verify if what I'm telling you is true. Don't always believe it. Hmm? And if it is true, do something about it. Now, so what we tend to do in the modern world, again, problems of luxury, problems of privilege, as I call them, is because there is no tiger attacking you, okay, you start to 
find other things to worry about. If there was a tiger attacking you, you wouldn't be thinking about what you told your, your girlfriend or wife yesterday. You wouldn't, okay? Or what she told you yesterday. You wouldn't. You would be engaged in the tiger, mm. right? But the problem is, of course, if there is no tiger to your brain, we're still going to die anyway because, you know, how could she say this to me? Mm? And so as it analyzes the past and, you know, as it plans for the future or dwells on the future or worries about the future, your brain is living in what I call brain time. Brain time has nothing to do with reality. It's constructed completely inside your head and it has zero impact on the world. Right. So I, when I was coming to you today, I, you know, dropped my uh, lovely girlfriend to the airport and then I, um, you know, I um, drove to you. Theoretically, it should take 35, 40 minutes. Yeah. I, I halfway through, I realized, no, there is a bit of traffic and I'm going to be late. Brain time hmm, is to tell myself I should have dropped her, uh, you know, 15 minutes early. Uh, I should have planned differently with Spencer. We should have made it 2.15 instead of 2. Uh, you know, I'm always an idiot. I'm always late. Uh, you know, why did I do this? Why did I do that? That's all brain time. Does it make any difference to the world? Not at all, right? Practical time is what we need to do. Practical time is for me to say, okay, uh, I am going to be late. I might as well consult with Google Maps to find if there is a traffic, uh, there, there is a road that doesn't have as much traffic. And I might as well tell Spencer so that he doesn't wait for me, okay? And beyond that, hmm, nothing else would impact on the situation other than finding a better route and telling you that I'm really sorry and I respect you fully and I'm really, I didn't mean to be late. There's nothing more I can do. That's practical time. That's sh shifting my incessant thoughts that have no impact on the world but bother me hmm, into practical thoughts so I either bring the past into learning and forget the past. So I basically tell myself, when you said that it upset Spencer, you know, two weeks ago, don't say that to Spencer again. Learned, lesson learned, past forgotten, or at least archived, okay? Or in the future, next time, if it's a Monday and it's one o'clock, plan 15 minutes more. Or in the future, within the 10 minutes that I'm late to you, here are the actions that I can take. Yeah. By doing that, suddenly life becomes... Timeless, interestingly. Time, life becomes right here, right now. Right here, right now is the most effective way even the best businessmen in the world work. It's, it's interesting when you talk about timelessness. I, on, I, only, I only notice I'm in the present when I concentrate on being in the present. Yeah. So you give the example of the tiger, but there are, there are times like I'm having a really interesting conversation like I am with you now that I'm kind of acutely aware that I'm in the present and this is all that's happening around me so it's 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 very conscious but most of the time the presence is is the being in the present is is something I don't think about yeah and so it's almost like I have to train my brain to 100% to, to remember there's so much I want to talk to you about that because there's, there's a real aspect to this that I find fascinating and, and, and one of them is how you separate your brain from your body. I do. 
from myself actually from my my real self as well yeah and i think the the the, the that 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 part of being present and the aspect of timelessness almost for me is that part too when when i heard you say that in another podcast i heard you say that i i believe that anyone that says that normally is there's some schizophrenia involved <laughs> that's the first time i see it that way <laughs> but and it's like because because you you know if you watch if you watch stuff for people that are schizophrenic there's conversations that are taking place in their head yeah and invariably the conversations are, are, are dangerous and damaging and, yeah. and, har- and harmful should i say but when, and when you said it i never wanted ever to say out loud what you said out loud yeah because I felt that if I said that out loud, someone may s- said to me, you're schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like I have conversations. Yeah. So I, 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 I have a conversation with myself every morning. Uh-huh. And so once I've had a shave and clean my teeth, and all that kind of stuff, I look in the mirror deep into my pupils, like deep into my pupils. And I then talk to myself about how today is going to be and what I expect of today. Amazing. To that person. So it's like, you know, maybe maybe yesterday I was a bit impatient, so I'll be expensive. More patience today is required. So can we make sure that we're like that? Can you do this? Make sure that you don't forget to execute this and so on and so forth. And it's it's two minutes. Yeah. But it's a very conscious conversation with what I believe is my subconscious. So when you said what you said that in, in a podcast I heard you say that, I'm like, okay, there's somebody else that believes what I believe. Can you do me a favor for the benefit of everyone and, and elaborate on how you see that? Because I think it's fascinating. So this is pure science. huh? Uh, the, the, the thing is that we as, again, if you're Western educated, I think therefore I am is a big part of your belief system. Mm-hmm. Okay. That you, that we glorify thoughts so much that we define ourselves by our thoughts. If I don't have thoughts, then I don't exist is the Western belief. Now, that's absolute crap. Truth and uh, you know, truth is there are many times where you don't have thoughts and you you do exist, right? There are times where you are asleep and you do exist. There are times when you're in a uh, on an operating table and you are unconscious and you exist, right? Uh, more interestingly, there are times when you're not thinking and you're existing more. Okay, uh, so so that's the that's the real real kicker when you when you. When you when you do when you go on a forty days retreat like I do, uh, these are actually the moments that I look forward to for the whole year. That moment of somewhere on day seven where I'm in total silence and I'm completely overwhelmed with existing, with being, because we in the modern world have created a hyper masculine world that's all about doing. Okay, and so we start to see ourselves existing only when we're doing something, when we're achieving something, when we're engaged in something, okay? Reality is the other half of humanity is a a nature of being, which is the feminine side of us, okay? Which is to say, I am. I don't do, I am. And, And being can take you a lot further than doing if we were not reporting to the street every quarter. Even if we're reporting to the streets every quarter, by the way, being kind or being creative or being intelligent hmm, or being patient, right? Being patient involves no doing whatsoever, hmm, but it can change the entire environment that you're operating in, right? Now, because of that, hmm, 
that constant engagement in doing, we are constantly, constantly thinking. Okay? Constantly thinking up here, by the way, because there are many other ways, like intuitive thinking, that don't necessarily happen up here. Perhaps they're communicated from your heart here. Now, that constant thinking was actually uh, studied since the 1900s. So, uh, um, um, Vygotsky, uh, Lev Vygotsky was the uh, a Russian Nobel scientist, who a psychologist, who basically won the, the, the Nobel Prize for what he called the internal dialogue. And he observed that when you're speaking to yourself, your voice box is moving ever so slightly to mimic the way you would speak out loud, okay? And in his explanation at the time, he was basically saying that when you're a child and you're starting to learn language, before you learn language, you're in your subconscious brain, you're able to perceive things, okay? In a form of being, when you start to learn language, it becomes the only building block of knowledge that you have. So you start to communicate to everyone in language. You start to tell your mom, water, uh, you know, microphone, whatever, if you're a podcaster when you're a young child. <laughs> but then but then basically, it becomes awkward. You start to feel that, you know, they don't welcome your blabbering all the time, so you internalize the dialogue. And so you tell yourself, when I look at you right now, in my brain, my brain says, he's paying attention. But it's it's stating it in a statement, in a, in using words. Interestingly, MIT put people in MRI machines back in 2007, if I remember correctly, and they would give them word puzzles. They would t tell them to solve problems. And what happened was that the proper problem-solving areas of your brain would engage to solve the problem. It may take you five seconds, 10 seconds, whatever, but you can see those parts lighting up. And then those parts would go dark and your uh, um, um, verbal association or communication areas of the brain, the same areas I use right now to, to talk to you, would light up for up to eight seconds. And then after eight seconds, you would know the answer. So your, problem so your brain solves the problem and then takes eight seconds to tell you what the answer is. You're, literally, your brain is talking to you, okay? It's two parties. Now, that two parties, if you, if you want to forget about science and go a little bit ab above that into philosophy and spirituality, that actually is really easy under easily understood in the Eastern uh, traditions. Why? Because if it, if it was me talking to me inside my head, why would I need to talk? By definition, from an object-subject relationship, if it's me talking to me, I would know what I want to say without needing to say it. The reason there is a, a conversation, a dialogue happening is because it's two parties. One party is you, and we can go back to defining what you is later, okay? And the other party is your biological self. And your biological self is led by that glorified uh, three pounds lump of meat, tofu really, that's called your brain, okay? And, and it's interesting because you have another glorified organ in your chest that's called your heart, and your heart you know, uh, uh, pumps blood around your body and that's one of the reasons you survive, you don't tell yourself, I pump blood, therefore I am, mm -hmm. okay? You, then t you don't tell yourself, I breathe, therefore I am. You don't tell yourself, sorry to say, I pee, therefore I am, mm -hmm. right? You're not the biological product of your kidneys. Mm -hmm. And yet the biological product of your brain, those words happening inside your head, that's the job of your, your brain. Your brain's biological function is to is to, in a computer science terms, is to connect to all of the sensory objects that you have 
make sense of the world around you and communicate those concepts for you in a way that allows you to make decisions, right? And yet, it's just a biological function. Hmm? And yet we say, I think, therefore I am. The truth is, I am, therefore I think, or I am, therefore my brain thinks. That's the truth, okay? I exist, and part of my existence is a, a, a heart that pumps blood, kidneys that, you know, take uh, poisons out of my system, and a brain that makes sense of concepts in the, in the you know, in, in, a, in a structure of words. Now, when you see it that way, everything changes. Because if your brain is a third party, I call my brain Becky, okay? A third party, completely different person. Why? Because it is not me, and that helps me, that makes that differentiation, right? If Becky is not me, then I don't have to listen, okay? I surely don't have to obey, okay? And most of the time, I have the right to debate. Most of the time, I can tell Becky, well, what are you talking about? Where did that come from, right? Can you prove it to me? Like, if you and I are sitting and having a conversation about business or about something, and you say, hey, Mo, look, uh, the, you know, the Emirati dirham is going to decline against the dollar, I'll tell you, where did you get that from? I have, I give myself the right to debate, right? If your brain tells you that, for some reason your brain is anxious, and you're living in, in Dubai and you go like, oh, no, no, I shouldn't keep my, right? You don't debate. You take that as like, yeah, sure, brain. What are we going to do about it? Are we going, right? So when that starts to happen, suddenly it's you're in command of what's happening inside your head. So I actually, like you said in the morning when you have that meeting with yourself, I actually have three times a week I have a meeting that I call Meet Becky, okay? And Meet Becky is almost the opposite of meditation, Right? Oh, you know, meditation, you're supposed to sort of teach Becky to, to stay calm and quiet, to teach your brain to stay calm and quiet. I do the opposite. So I sit down with a paper and a pen. It's 25 minutes exercise, okay? And I simply allow my brain to go wild wherever it wants to go, right? It's almost like a cleanse, a flush. Hmm? And the, uh, there are only two conditions. Condition number one is anything my brain will say, I will acknowledge, Okay and ask for another thing so I don't attach to. So my brain will say, hey, by the way, um, you know, you're, uh, you haven't had coffee yet. Oh, we haven't had coffee. Yes, thank you, brain, what else? Okay, uh, don't forget to text Spencer about unstressable. Sure, I would write that down on the piece of paper. Text Spencer, what else? Right, so rule number one is I will acknowledge it. At the beginning, I would do that out loud. And then I, I would dismiss it. What else is basically asking for something else? The second thing is nothing is to be repeated. So I basically tell my brain, when you've run out of ideas, we're going to shut down. That's it, right? So my brain would keep going, you know. Uh, oh, by the way, you're fat. Thank you, brain. Not necessary, but all right. Yes, I'm gaining a little, a little bit of weight. What else, right? Uh, yeah, don't forget to buy, uh, you know, oat milk. Sure, oat milk. What else? Uh, you're fat, but you said that before, right? And, and once you start to treat your brain that way, it goes like, yeah, yeah, I did actually say that before. I'm really sorry. What else? Mm, nothing. That's all I have to say, right? And I promise you, you have never felt a joy in your life, like the joy of that moment of silence, when you're not forcing your brain to stop, where your brain suddenly goes like, that's it. I've said everything I have to say, right? Normally that happens to me around minute 11 to minute 13. And oh my God, the remaining 12 minutes. Unbelievable bliss. Bliss. Your brain is like, 
yeah, we've covered all of those topics that would have normally taken me the next 24 hours to completely drain you to get them covered. They're just done, okay? And once you finish that exercise after 25 minutes, if you have five minutes more, just look at it and go like, oh, that's so stupid. Why did you write that? That doesn't make any sense. That, you know, why are you saying this to me, okay? And, and suddenly six of, or seven, 60 or 70% of those things are scratched out. I scratch them out visibly so that my brain says, sees that we shouldn't talk about this again. And believe it or not, they don't come up again. Because if they come up again, I would say, but we scratched them out. What's wrong with your brain, right? Now, call that uh, schizophrenic, maybe, but it's a good schizophrenic, if you ask me, to, be, to have that conversation openly with that third party that's called Becky, my brain, and actually put her in her place, right? She's working for me. I'm the boss. And 99% of the time, we're working for our brains. We have other examples of this because if you take something like, I don't know, the, the famous comedian, uh, Barry Humphreys, Dame Edna Everidge, died a few days ago. Do you know who that is? Uh, no. So it's an Australian comedian that dresses up as a... Um, uh, as a drag queen um, mm. and, and performs uh, as a comedian, as a drag queen, but also performs as himself. Okay. <laughs> and it's a national institution, even though he's Australian, the, 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 the royal family love him and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So when I think of that, it's like there's, there's two characters. Two characters, yeah. You know? And, and okay, he's a famous guy, but there's, there's other people that step into two characters, a, a cross-dresser is essentially stepping into another character to be another person. Yeah. And that, and I wonder if there's any synergies between that and the way that we talk about the brain, whether you're having conversations, there's two people involved. We're not two characters. So first of all, Daniel Kahneman's work well, is- Be Is Becky not another character? So, so, so your brain itself is two characters for all of us. So Thinking Fast and Slow is a great book to read about that. So you, you have the intuitive brain that very quickly answers everything, you know, uh, it's like, shall we go party and jump from an aeroplane? Yeah, let's do it, right? And then the other rational brain would go like, hold on, you're 56, let's not do that. You know, maybe we should think differently, right? And, and, and so thinking fast and slow will show you that you have a fast brain and a, uh, a, a slow brain. But any trauma expert will tell you that you also have multiple brains within that are not multiple brains, but multiple configurations of thought. So, so the, the most powerful part of our brains, which is for any computer scientist, mind-blowing really, is the idea of neuroplasticity. Uh, and with neuroplasticity, what ends up happening is that whatever, uh, basically the, the definition is neurons that fire together, wire together. So whatever thought that you run in your brain frequently enough just like going to the gym. Huh? If you go to the gym and lift weights all the time, you look like a triangle. If you go to the gym and squat all the time, you look like a pair, right? It's very visible, you can see it. Hmm? If you watch negative news all the time, hmm, your brain will be wired to be very good at grasping negative news, mm -hmm. okay? If you're watching horror movies every night uh, that you're, uh, you know, before you go to bed, then your brain will be very, very good at being terrified. It will be so good at it, as a matter of fact, that it will generate a few more for you in the, in, in the form of nightmares when you sleep, right? Now, what we do with those brains is we, we train them to be what they are through neuroplasticity, okay? So sometimes you take a traumatic experience, you bury it deep inside, 
and you, you know, that that experience would tell you, for example, humans are not to be trusted, let's say, okay? Because you've had a couple of experiences as a child that made you feel that you shouldn't be trusting humans. And then you bury the story, okay? And you take that fact and you repeat it in your head over and over, looking for evidence to prove it. So you start looking for every time someone cuts you off in the streets, you say humans are not to be trusted. And every time, you, you know, the delivery uh, 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 person is five minutes late, you say humans are not to be trusted. You see, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. And then it becomes your reality. Mm. Okay, It becomes a very, very strong part of you that I would describe as one of the party that's inside your head. Okay, So you can have the fast thinker, the slow thinker, you can have the terrified child, you can have the excited teenager, you can have the, you know, passionate, you know, physical, uh, um, uh, you know, athlete, you can have multiple personalities within you that are configurations. This is not a sickness. Huh? They're configurations of all of your desires and all of your dreams and all of your fears and every one of them pops out hmm? at a separate moment of thinking and tells you, Hey, 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 no, no, hold on, hold on. We're not going to do this. We're, we're going to do that. Let me talk about myself. Huh? I am an artist at heart. I am a maker. I love to make things. Hmm? I spent 25 years, 27 years in corporate America, right? I mean, I made a lot of things, but not with my hands. I mean, I participated, I led teams and so on. Hmm? But the truth is, when you leave me, hmm, I want to be a carpenter to do some uh, clay and cement work. I want to draw. I want to play music. I want to write. I want. I, this is what I am, right? And of course, if you have those multiple characters within you, every now and then one of them will pop up in the middle of a meeting. I'll go like, this is not the life I want to live at all. I want to be somewhere where I can have a, you know, a, 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 a bandsaw and, and cut wood and create things, right? That's how does How does that differ? If we go back to when Ali passed away and the grief he went through, how does how does that differ when you're going through a stage of grief? Grief is a different, uh, grief is a very, uh, we're not made to accept what life throws at us, okay, uh, when we can't solve it. We're not made that way. So, 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 especially those who, I mean, all of us, but especially those who have been paid for a long time to solve problems like you and I, right? I've been valued in life, not because I could code, but because I, my code could solve a problem, not because I could lead the business, because leading my, the way I led the business was enabling me to overcome challenges, mm. right? Deaths and loss, and by the way, loss, loss, and, loss, loss and grief, I always you know, compile into one. Mm -hmm. From the silliest thing of losing your phone and not being able to find it, all the way to losing a loved one, is the same uh, uh, psychology, if you want. And, and the five stages of grief are very straightforward. Now, here's the, the thing. The thing is that above grief, hmm, if you just rise above it for a few seconds, I find that there is a reality about life, hmm, which is an acceptance that some problems cannot be solved, right? And, and, and these are not only grief. I'll give you an interesting one. You and I have been talking for maybe 30, 40 minutes. We'll never get those back, ever. Mm -hmm. That's it, they're done. 
okay? Uh, my car is parked outside in the sun, it will be hot, okay? There's, there are things in life you cannot change. Now, interestingly, when those things are meeting your expectations, because you're used to, the, to them, you've internalized that this is the way things are, you're okay, right? So the fact that the car is going to be hot, mm -hmm. yes, it may physically bother me, but it doesn't mentally upset me. My, the event is meeting my expectations, okay? Uh, on the other hand, losing a loved one, or losing your telephone, whatever, which lies in between, does not meet your expectations, okay? Losing a loved one like a parent or an old person, like I'm, I say that with a ton of respect because every human life is valuable, but you know, when COVID started to hit the older generation, in my Eastern mentality, I was like, we were used to a life expectancy of 37 years, just around the 1950s, okay? Uh, you know, after World War II and all of the death and so on, the average life expectancy was sub-50 for sure. Now we're living until 80, and when someone we love leaves at 80, we start to be disgruntled with life. Now, of course, we love them. We, we want them to be with us forever, but the reason why we're disgruntled is not our love. The reason why we're disgruntled is because the healthcare system has convinced us that there is a concept called saving lives. We have not reached that yet. We may in the future be able to save lives and live forever, okay? But so far, we're only extending lives. And the reality of the matter is that most of the time when you're, you're in 90s and 80s and so on, it's not the most active life and it's not the most exciting life. And yet we dis get disgruntled with, this, with it. With the, with it. We, we, we grieve for two reasons. We grieve for missing them, which is beautiful grief, if you mm -hmm. think about it. And we grieve because we disagree with life. We disagree with life is the, is the reason for the five stages of grief. It starts with denial because we disagree with it. It didn't happen. Of course it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, And then you go through all of the stages, you negotiate a little, you go like, hey, no, 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 let's not put it this way. And then, you know, can I, can I give you this and give me my son back? And, you know, the five stages are constantly ba you saying, I don't agree, I don't agree, I don't agree, the, four, the first four stages. And then the fifth stage you accept. And when you accept in the five stages of grief, so by the way, some research now makes them seven stages of grief. But, 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 you know, when you accept, you finally said, I'm okay with that. I'm okay that they left. I still miss him tremendously. Hmm? But I'm, I accept that he left. Now, what happened to us uh, Nibel, my uh, my ex, and Ali, uh, and myself when Ali left, was quite unusual because at the time I was chief business officer of Google X from Dubai. I, I I operated out of Dubai. I had been seven years before that chief uh, business officer of emerging markets. Sorry, uh, um, uh, vice president of uh, of emerging markets for Google. Literally the most prominent uh, emerging markets role in technology in the whole world, and I operated out of Dubai. And so I had quite a bit of a network in Dubai of people that I worked with and benefited and knew well. And you know that society here is not very formal. We get to know each other as humans. Yeah. And so, of course, when Ali died, I had so many senior executives in the government call and say, we're so sorry, Mo. You know, we really are very sorry. 
one of them was deeply connected to the Ministry of Health and basically said, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And so I was sitting on my sofa with, with my wife then next to me, and he said, would you mind if we perform an autopsy on Ali's body? And by then we had buried Ali, you know, in the Islamic culture, you bury your dead as quickly as, yeah, as, quickly as you can. So we literally buried him, I think, an hour and a half after he left us. Uh, yeah, it's, it was Ramadan. And again, because I had so many people, wonderful people, uh, you know, um, that, that were helping me and supporting me, uh, they literally, like I had five, six very senior people leaving their jobs, going, making sure that we have the everything, all of the formalities done and the paperwork done. And it was incredible. So I looked at Nibel and I said, Nibel, would you be okay if they performed an autopsy on Ali's body? And wise as she always has been, she raised her head slowly with one tear on her uh, cheek and said, would it bring Ali back? All of this, like, you know, at the time, the executive that is, that's been paid his whole life to solve problems, to, to, to right all wrongs, hmm, was like, I'm going to get this right. And she said, would it bring Ali back? Because honestly, nothing you will ever do would bring him back. Okay. Once you get that, you get anchored in acceptance. Acceptance, the fifth stage of grief, grief is over. You, you now accept. Doesn't change a thing about your pain. Doesn't change a thing about you missing him. Doesn't change a thing about you wishing it differently, but you've accepted. Okay. And all of life is around that acceptance, believe it or not. Hmm? All, of, all of life, you know, from, from the most senior business person going through the current economic struggles and simply uh, feeling horrible about everything that's going on and complaining to everyone or saying, look, economic cycles go up and down. We're on a down cycle. That's it. I accept. And then I see what I can do about it. I accept and I see what I can do about it. That's the Jedi master level of happiness. It's also the Jedi master level of success. Okay. Jedi master level is I don't really feel like a victim. I feel like I am a video gamer in a very exciting game that is sometimes given, uh, you know, with challenges. Uh, that's the idea. That's the design of the game we're in is that this is a game that will bring challenges. Okay. And yeah, you believe it or not, you can feel angry or victimized or disgruntled as much as you want. You can either solve the challenges or suffer them. That's the only two choices you have. And so when Ali left and, and Nibel said, would it, would it bring him back? I think we both got anchored in the truth. And I think at that time, I, I told Becky, my brain, I said, look, he's gone. As much as it pains me, he's gone. What can we do to make things better despite his absence? Okay, it's a very different way of thinking. And I promise you, everything changed. We had the most incredible memorial when he, when, you know, when people came to visit to, to pay their respect. We had, uh, you know, a, a lot of connection for everyone that he loved him. We gave all of his things away. So, so many people had a piece of him with them. And, and it was amazing. And then I started to write. Okay. And I started to write for the simple reason of, I will document the conversations I had about happiness with my son and give those to the world. So that a tiny bit of essence. When I first met you, you said to me um, that you like to write. And you said to me, in between conversations with you, in between what I'm doing, the first thing I always want to do is write. I just have this, this innate, innate obsession with writing. And we, we spoke about a couple of different 
tools that you used yeah um with your writing as well so i'm very very aware that you like to write and you've written on various different subjects and again there's so much to go into we could be here for the next two days talking about all of this stuff let's let's talk about a word that has defied me for a long time that is something you've worked towards which is happiness mm. happiness has been um a painful word for me over the course of the last 10 years probably to yeah, probably 10 years trying to understand what that actually means yeah and 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 feeling that there's very very limited examples that i can lean on over the last 10 years where i can say that i was truly happy mm. which means to me the opposite of, of happiness is pain mm. there's sadness and pain and so for people that are chugging down the road in their merry path and are okay with stuff, you know, things aren't bad for them and life's, life's going okay, it's not terrible. I think in that place to search for happiness has got to be easier than, than, than searching from it from a place of pain. But, but you turned that on its head a little bit because you came from that deep sense of pain to, to find happiness. I really struggle with that. I really struggle with understanding it. Uh, I understand the mission, but I struggle with understanding it because of my own experience. Yeah. Most high achievers like you do. That's the truth. The, the, the truth is, so, so to start with, we need a definition for happiness because the, the typical cycle of life is either you become successful and you drown yourself in toys, okay? That's your path to happiness or you become stressed and unsuccessful or at least not fulfilled and you drown yourself in parties and other toys and that's your path to happiness. This is the modern world's path to happiness, okay? None of that is happiness. I mean, we all know for a fact that nothing you will ever buy uh, will ever make you happy. Mm -hmm. It will make you happy for a few seconds, maybe a few days, but eventually it will wear out, right? I know I say that with confidence because, you know, uh, there was a point in time where I had 16 cars in my garage, right? I, I think the first car should have taught me, which was one, not one of the 16. When I first came to Dubai the first time, I came to Abu Dhabi the first time, I love cars. I mean, it's the fact I'm an engineer. I built two cars with my own hands. I love the mechanics of them. I restored them with my hands. I love them, right? And, and when I came to, to Abu Dhabi the first time, a friend of mine was leaving and he had a BMW 5 Series at the time, two years old, okay? Who he loved more than his daughter, okay? And so it was brand new. He gave it to me for like 40% of the price. So I was the happiest person alive. And you know, at the time, if you remember, getting a driver's license was very difficult. I got a license on my first test, mm -hmm. okay? And now I have my beautiful BMW. So what do I do? I treat my BMW as, should, as I should. I take it to the BMW service center. As I drive it in and go sit in the lobby waiting for the service so that it's you know perfectly treated, it had 6,000 kilometers on it or 10 or whatever, a BMW 7 Series walks in, okay? And as soon as the 7 Series you know, drives in, I go like, what's wrong with me? Like, when will I have one of those? Why do I have a five series? That other one was, you know, my one was blue. That one was uh, 
sand gold, very, very light gold, you know, very interestingly uh, Dubai style, you know, like I've never seen that before. I want one of those, right? We're never happy with whatever we get. Why? Because there's always something else that you want, right? Here's the interesting bit. If you look at any moment in your life you ever felt happy, it wasn't about how that moment was. It wasn't about the events of that moment, mm -hmm. okay? It was always about an interesting comparison that happens in your brain between the event or at least your perception of that event in that moment and how you, life, you want life to be, okay? The event itself could be, I'm driving a BMW 5 Series, right? That could make me happy if that was what I wanted from life, but if what I wanted is I, I wanna drive a 7 Series, that's not gonna work for me, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, I, I, the, the joke I always say is, you know, if, if it rains here in the UAE, when it rains, we're very happy. Why? Because you don't get rain all the time, even if it messes the traffic a little bit. But, you know, it's nice. It's really nice. Huh? Uh, I always say, it, it, you know, if, if, if it's your ex-boyfriend's wedding, wedding day, you'd be very happy if it rains, right? <laughs> right? If it is your wedding day, you'd be very unhappy, right? Rain itself is contextual if you want it. It doesn't always make you happy, doesn't always make you unhappy. Mm -hmm. It depends on what you want at that moment. If what you want is rain, you'll be happy, right? And so happiness in that case is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life, your perception of the events of your life and your expectations of how life should be, okay? Inside your head, you're constantly comparing your perception of the event to expectation up to 60,000 times a day, believe it or not. If you measure, if you measure your brain uh, speed, which ticks like a computer, really, you can do that sixty thousand times. Mm -hmm. You know, if you and I are chatting and something happens to the camera, your brain will go like, "That's not good for the podcast." You'll start to worry about it. You'll not feel happy about it until we fix something with the camera, mm -hmm. right? Now, if you define it that way, then suddenly it's quite interesting that it's not the events of your life that make you happy. Okay. It's that comparison that makes you happy or unhappy. And that comparison happens where? Inside your brain. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen in the real world, okay? An event is interpreted by your brain through its filters and traumas and perceptions and so on, and then compared to an expectation that's created where? Inside your brain, right? Mm -hmm. So happiness really is happening not because of what, the, what life gives you, it's happening because of the way you think about what life gives you. So does that mean that happiness is intrinsically linked to gratitude? Gratitude is the, is the optimum method, right? Okay, the optimum method. The, if I concentrate and tell myself to be grateful, if I do that every day and remind myself of that every day, so again, talking to my brain, which I have done and practiced before, I have better days. Yeah. And I. By definition. So happiness is your calm and peaceful contentment when you're okay with life as it is. Doesn't matter what life is. Yeah, it doesn't matter what it is. What matters is that you're okay with it. Right? Now, Spence, I love you, man. But honestly, your life is amazing. You're a successful business person in a wonderful city, you know, uh, uh, loved by almost everyone that knows you, right? Honestly, you should every morning look in your, at yourself in the mirror and say, 
Fuck, life is amazing. Yeah, of course it comes with a few challenges. Honestly, right? Otherwise it would be boring like hell. Can you Have you ever played a video game where you had to push the controller forward and wait 70 years? Video games are fun because on the path there are things that you need to interact with, that you learn from, that you become a better person because of. Right? But the reality of the matter, I'm, I'm not saying this to you, Spencer. I'm saying this to everyone listening. Okay? If you have a device that allows you to listen to this podcast or watch this podcast, okay, and you have the safety of a roof on top of your head, so no tiger is eating you right now, and obviously you're not starving to death because if you were, you wouldn't be listening to us, then you're luckier than most of the people in the world. Okay? And yeah, your girlfriend or boyfriend's annoying. Who gives this? Like, honestly, what did you expect? I mean, it's one of my most interesting uh, observations is, you know how the um, Northern European countries measure something called subjective well-being? Mm, the Scandinavian countries. Scandinavian yeah, countries. Yeah, yeah. So, so quality of life, basically. You have retirement, you have health care, you have this, you have that. Some of them I hear, uh, you know, when you're depressed, they'll send you for two weeks vacation in Spain just so that to see the sun so that you're not unhappy. Ha- incredible quality of life and still some of the highest suicide rates in the world. Why? Because your brain is trained to look for what's wrong. Somehow we think we have a, a service level agreement with life, okay? If everything's so perfect and I can always make money and I can always uh, you know, uh, 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 solve problems and I can always and I can always, why is my girlfriend annoying? Where is the self, like I signed the service level agreement with life, okay, that everything should be perfect. Like, why is the government not fixing my board, boring times? Like, why am I bored? Right? Seriously? Life, for most of us, is okay. Unless there is a tiger attacking you right now, life is okay. So why does the brain keep pursuing this then? Why does it pursue this what's wrong? Because we're trained to. But, 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 but where are we getting that training from? From, your, from the very young years where either your parents or your circumstances told you Okay, that unless you are incredibly successful, you're worth nothing and you're not safe. So what what happens is, my mom, wonderful, wonderful woman, okay, you know, grew up from a a good family that, you know, self-made, and and basically she always told me, work hard, save money, it's okay to be unhappy, when you're successful, you're going to be happy. So then, so then, if we if 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 we went and spent time every weekend, you and I, with the Rockefellers, then we'd be eternally unhappy. But if we go and spend time every other weekend with people that are less fortunate than us or may have struggled in some way, it reminds us of how lucky we are. I'm I'm going to be happy both ways because I can assure you the unhappiest people in the world are uh, the Rockefellers. <laughs> Absolutely right. So so I've I've but actually the perception, isn't it? Yeah, the, per- the 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 reality of the matter is that so I've trained. 20, 30,000 people face-to-face on happiness. Well, before COVID, I used to run courses and classes, and interestingly, most banks would call me for their high net worth individuals, right? To give, to, you know, to show them how a path to happiness. And some of the unhappiest people on the planet are the richest people on the planet. Why? Because when you have money and wealth and you're throwing it and you're at your unhappiness and it's going away, your unhappiness compounds with despair. It's like, okay, so... I have tried everything and it's not working. This is going to stay, right? The only thing you can try is to say, I'm very happy with this. I'm very, whatever it is, 
whatever is right now is amazing. In all honesty, whatever is right now, unless you're in chronic pain, you're in a deep trauma, okay, or you're suffering from a very, very immediate loss, okay, the rest is okay. The rest is part of the video game. And the trick is, can I look at that and can I tell myself, so much fun, so much fun that I'm being challenged a little, okay? So much fun that I'm overcoming some of those challenging challenges, right? So much joy to feel the sweetness after the bitterness, okay? So much uh, a blessing to get something that I didn't have before, right? So much, you know, uh, um, gratitude in my life for another breath. Because we take that for granted. Like, if you've ever lived in a world where that wasn't taken for granted, you wouldn't think about the stuff that bothers you anymore. If there was a reason for your unhappiness right now, hmm, you wouldn't be thinking about far past and future. Okay, let's change direction a bit here. Your latest work, Unstressable. Mm, love that. Tell me more about that. Well, I wasn't going to work on it. <laughs> I was not until Alice, who Alice is our common friend, told me openly. So Alice is a stress management expert. That's what she does. And she said, you have to write about stress. And I said, not my topic. You know, I prefer to talk about happiness. Uh, and she said, but those who are stressed will never find happiness. And, you know, there are lots of things you need to write about. So I said, okay, Alice, what do you have in mind? Let, write a structure and tell me what you think. And then we'll, so she went away, came back with a full chapter and a structure that was wonderful in every possible way. So I got really excited. And then I started to write seriously about the topic. But Alice and I are two uh, yin and yang, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm the annoying engineer who takes everything in logic and bullet points. And if I can write a chapter in four lines, that, that would be it for me. Alice is very feminine. You know Alice very well. So she writes from the heart and uses stories and examples and emotions and so on. And so somehow we, may, we managed to find a working relationship that basically made us, made me write what I want and her edited it. And then uh, she wrote what she needed and I edited it. And we constantly aligned on the structure which I believe has written one of my best books ever. It's a coming, the book is coming out in November, uh, but it is uh, definitely very comprehensive, very, 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 very detailed around the topic. Now, the, the theory is very straightforward. I, I started uh, with a comparison between stress in objects, uh, which we understand very well through physics, mm -hmm. okay, and stress in humans. And, you know, the, the thing about stress is that uh, we think that the answer to stress is to deal with the challenges uh, that you, or to remove or to erase the challenges that you face. That's not true at all. So in objects, uh, you know, when you stress an object, you stress an object uh, with a force or a challenge mm -hmm. if you want. And you, the object's ability to deal with it is related to this cross-section, to area, the square area of the cross-section of the object, right? So this is why a camel wouldn't sink in the sand, not because it's light in weight. The camel is a very heavy load, right? But it is distributed across the hoofs of the camel, which are very wide. So in humans, that cross-section is skills and abilities. And it's actually quite interesting when you see it that way, because 
you, you, we, all of us, we tend to be able to uh, carry bigger loads as we go along in life. So things that would freak you out when you're 20, you wouldn't even notice them in your 40s. They don't stress you at all. Mm -hmm. You deal with them very, very easy. With, un with that kind of understanding, you would realize that, yes, of course, we need to reduce the number of stressors that you have in your life, but you also need to increase your skills and abilities. And interestingly, in that case, the object could benefit from a bit of stress, which is actually true from a biological point of view. A bit of stress, the, the reason for the stress machine biologically within us as a human, as humans, is that it turns us into superhumans. So in reality, it's if you remember the old days when we had those... Um, 33 megahertz uh, Intel chips uh, where you could switch a, a, a button and it turns into turbo, so it's 66 megahertz. Early days of computers, I know that you're blanking on that. <laughs> okay. but, but, but we had an ability, I think it was the XT chip, where you pressed a button and it doubled in speed. Right. Okay? Stress is that button. Okay, it's the turbocharger in your car. You okay. you you push uh, uh, the you know the uh, accelerator. You get the turbo to kick in, and suddenly you're double the power. Mm -hmm. Let's say. So when you're stressed, you're you know you focus better, you concentrate better, you you are stronger, you're faster, you're not you know uh, um, unfocused and so on. Because of that, there is benefit to stress. So where does it go wrong? It goes wrong when stress breaks us. Uh -huh. Okay. And it breaks us in several ways. It breaks us in anticipation of an event, which is fear, worry, anxiety. <laughs> it breaks us when the event is so massive that it, you know, like a traumatic event, okay? And it breaks us when it keeps repeating to the point where we get to burn out, okay? So let's talk about those quickly. Maybe we should start with trauma. Trauma, trauma is you know, a, a loss of a loved one, you know, being injured in an accident, going to war, uh, you know, whatever, M many, 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 many reasons. Some of them are PTSD-inducing. And it's quite interesting because trauma is actually not the biggest reason for the, you know, the, the, the pandemic of stress that we have in the world at all. The statistics will tell you that 97% of everyone you know will have at least one traumatic event in their life that is PTSD-inducing, so extreme trauma, okay? But interestingly, 91% of them will recover within three months, and 96%, 96%, 96.8% of them will recover within six months. So the remainder of people is 3%, mm -hmm. uh, let's say, more or less, uh, that are actually affected by trauma. So that's not the big one. The big ones are anxiety, fear, worry, panic, and so on, and burnout. So let's talk about those two separately. To understand anxiety, which I think is the biggest pandemic we have today, you have to understand all of its derivatives. So think of worry as a guess that something that, that there is something that might make my future less safe than my present. Okay? So I'm worried means I'm suspecting, if I'm worried that we're running out of time, I'm suspecting that we may actually be a little late and this conversation is lingering. Okay? No confirmation there. Fear is actually confirmed. So I am actually convinced. You, t you, you nodded your head when I say, uh, uh, you know, I'm late or we're running late. So I now know that we're running late and I have so much to say. So I'm actually afraid that I may not have the time to say what I have to say. Those two are treated very differently. Let me give you the difference so that we can talk about the other ones. 
if you're worried, if, if you're afraid, you need to talk, you need to work on reducing the risk of the event that is going to face you. Mm -hmm. Okay? But that's not what you should do when you're worried. When you're worried, you should work on verifying if you should be afraid. Getting clarity, yeah. Right? So if you if you verify, if you try to verify that there is actually a fear, something fearful coming or something unsafe coming, then turn it into fear and deal with it to reduce it. But if you verify that it isn't, the worry is gone. So, so there is a different human reaction to each of them. Similarly with panic. Panic is not about I'm afraid of something happening in the future. It's about the time span. Mm -hmm. It's basically panic is that threat is imminent. Yes. Okay. So if you're panicking, what you need to do is to work on the time, not work on the event and reducing the risk. You need to either give yourself more time, okay, or verify for yourself that the time remaining is enough to deal with it. Yeah. Right? Anxiety, the big one. Anxiety is not at all about what you're afraid of, believe it or not. Anxiety is about believing that you don't have the ability to deal with it. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah, that's so really so eye-opening, huh? Just so, say that again, because I think that's really quite profound there. I never even thought about that. Yeah, so, anxiety so, is? Anxiety is, I know there is a threat coming. I thought it through, and it's still threatening, and I don't know how to deal with this. Okay. So, you know, I'm going to lose my job. Hmm? If you're scared of I'm going to lose my job, hmm? But then you told yourself, if I talk to my manager, things will be better. And if I do this and that, you know, it will be easier. Then you're dealing with the fear. Anxiety is that you thought about this and said, no, if I talk to my manager, he's not going to listen. And if I try to find another job, I'm not going to find it in time. So now you're thinking about the idea of the threat is coming, okay, and I'm not going to be able to handle it. So in those situations, when you're anxious, it's very different than fear. When you're afraid, you work on what's you know, threatening you, when you're anxious, you work on yourself, you work on your abilities, you say, okay, I get it. So I'm not going to be able to talk to my boss. Why is that? How can I make it so that I talk to my boss? How can I establish that relationship? How can I do this? How can I do that? So working on your own abilities, or more interestingly, reminding yourself of your abilities. This is really the key for most of us. Hmm? Reminding yourself that one, truthfully, you're capable, you've done things before. And two, by the way, in the worst situations when you were anxious, okay, and the threat actually happened, you managed it and you're still here, right? Most of the time we forget that, yes, I might not be able to save this job, right? Um, so what? You know, I've, I've been there before. I found another job. I'm qualified. I can do this. I can do that. And most of the time I tell people, remember that, you know, most of the time what you're afraid of is just inconvenience. It's not really that you're going to end up being a homeless on the streets of New York and die from freezing, right? For most of, most of us, if, if you lose your job, hmm, yeah, I mean, yes, it's going to be tough times and you're going to feel, uh, uh, you know, worried and anxious and so on. And you may have to sell something or reduce your spending a little bit. But most of us, and I, again, I mean, if you're not, if you're one of those, you should be grateful. Most of us, we're not going to, die. It's not a physical threat as a result of most of the things we're anxious about. So that, that's anxiety and, and, and fear and worry and panic. But, but the, again, believe it or not, all of these are not because of an event that happened in your life. All future-looking statements are actually wrong, are actually false because they haven't happened yet. And so none of that actually happens. It's all in your brain. We should work on it this way. Burnout has actually happened. So burnout is the opposite. Hmm? 
Burnout is the aggregation of a massive number of little things, okay? Little or large, by the way, it doesn't matter. But most of the time, they're very little. A very aggressive alarm in the morning, uh, you know, what, you know, checking the news first thing when you wake up, uh, swiping too much on uh, social media and seeing things that upset you. Each and every one of those adds up. Right? In, in physics, if you remember fatigue, fatigue was one of the interesting mm -hmm. concepts in material science. Mm -hmm. But you hold a piece of plastic and you just bend it over left mm -hmm. and right and left and right and left and right, and then it breaks, mm -hmm. right? You haven't applied a massive force on it. It's just repetitive force mm -hmm. over and over, dissolves the molecular you know, uh, bonds, if you want, and then it fails. This is what happens to us with burnout. With burnout, what happens to us as humans is we take small to medium size uh, stressors and we keep applying them over and over and over and over. So uh, burnout, your burnout equation is the number of stressors multiplied by the intensity of each, multiplied by the frequency of application, multiplied by the uh, duration of application, right? And we, you can reduce any of those four and your burnout will be less light, right? Mm -hmm. the, the thing is, because they're small in nature, we forget. So that annoying alarm not only we, do we let ourselves have an annoying alarm in the morning, we snooze it so that it you know, shakes us out of bed three times in a row, mm. right? When in reality, you could have a nicer alarm that starts slowly and has nice music mm. or whatever, or you can do what I do. You know, when I need to wake up at 9 a.m., I count backwards eight hours and then an hour buffer, and I sleep at midnight, right? If I sleep at midnight, I set the alarm so that I feel comfortable. Mm? And at the same time, I normally wake up before it so there is no alarm at all one stressor gone an annoying friend one stressor gone you know a, 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 a commute that uh, tires me out i take music or a wonderful one of your podcasts and another stress is gone okay so the idea of paying attention constant attention to to your to to the items that burn you out because burnout like that piece of plastic happens suddenly huh? it's one extra s stressor and you're gone yeah most of us sadly don't do this um, as a practice, okay? We wait as per the Western medical me medicine approach. We wait until we're burned out. We wait until we're anxious and then we do something about it. And so Alice and I were suggesting the opposite. We're saying limit, learn, and listen. So basically you're constantly trying to limit, be weed out stressors. You're constantly trying to improve your skills. You're constantly trying to listen to your body, mind, uh, uh, you know, a heart and soul, basically, communicating signals to you so that you're alert to them. And this is a, a lifestyle. By by redesigning the way that we think about it and then applying a different process to it, the evidence then deter dictates that this issue of stress essentially is dissipated because we're, we're solving the problem before it comes a problem. That, that's, that's what unstressable is about. Unstressable is literally a commitment to not stress. So we're not telling you, here is how you come out of stress. Yes, we have mm. to tell you that because everyone is stressed already. But the promise of this work, whether the membership or the book, is you're not gonna go back to stress. Okay, it's, you're, you're gonna become unstressed. How big, okay, everyone would have said they've experienced stress. How big, as a epidemic, pandemic, whatever you want to call it, a problem is stress in most people's lives? What, what 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 statistics have we got to demonstrate how how much of an impact it has? So so once again, I don't like statistics, but I'll share a few with you. The idea is 
uh, um, let's we, we need to go back to the human experience after statistics. But believe it or not, more than 90% of all diseases that we get diagnosed for in the Western uh, society today are because of stress. So, what? Yeah, so 90%. So you're talking diabetes is a result, of, you know, it can be accelerated by stress. Uh, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, heart, the largest reason for death uh, is definitely ac accelerated by uh, stress. Obesity, believe it or not, can result from stress. Uh, you know, every every possible mental disorder results from stress, right? And the idea is uh, very straightforward. Your your machinery, the biological machinery that produces cortisol, that puts you in stress for, for you know. Uh, configuration if you want in the in the superhuman configuration is like a turbocharger intended to last a very short amount of time the original machinery is saying a tiger shows up i'm going to get stressed fight or flight run away beat it and done okay and you can see that in nature huh? a gazelle would be attacked by a predator and it will pop and run and you can see the hormones in action mm -hmm. and then it will either be eaten stress mm -hmm. is gone or it Get will life. escape and it will literally stop and shake its body and it's back to eating grass. Okay? We don't do that as humans. What we do, we, we used to do that when we were in nature. Okay? And the machinery was operating properly. That's not what we do today. Okay? We get stressed at work, then get stressed in the commute, then get home and feel stressed and then watch a horror movie and stress ourselves more. Right? And, and that cycle of constant stress hmm, is leading us to uh, um, of course, to burn out, but to, to the cycle to get, that gets you to burn out is a miserable cycle. Now, think about it as a human. If, if you have any of the following you know, uh, um, uh, symptoms, you're stressed. If you're not sleeping well, you're stressed. If you have aches in your body, uh, you know, muscles, uh, joints, uh, if you have constant headaches, you're stressed. If you have a libido's challenges, you're stressed. If you're uh, um, appetite is too high or too low, you're stressed, okay? Uh, you know, if you're uh, unable to uh, spend time in silence and enjoy a calm moment, you're stressed, okay? If you're constantly active and revving, you're stressed. And, and I can go on for hours. Hmm? Almost every single one of the things that are unpleasant in our life are simply because you have too much cortisol so, so, in your so brain. My mum used to say, "You've got ants in your pants, Spencer." It's pressed. Okay, because <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't sit still from a young age. I couldn't sit still. I was all... that's different. But I can't sit still now. Yeah. So, so sitting still, if you're enjoying what you're doing, is wonderful. If you're not st sitting still because you're enjoying what you're doing, is wonderful. Okay. It's, ah, okay. So you don't like sitting still because you're pursuing something you care about and enjoy. That, that, yeah. That's so, that's so, so st stress, stress is. I feel threatened that this situation, again, goes back to happiness. Huh? It's the opposite of happiness. Happiness is I'm okay with life as it is. Okay. Stress is I'm not okay with life as it might be. Right? So life itself can be okay, but then you're stressing yourself about everything that has happened or will happen or might happen. Okay? You're thinking ad ad about those things in a very interesting way not because they're threatening, but because we're perfectionists. Solving this problem is arguably, based upon the numbers and the information you gave me, arguably the biggest problem on the planet to solve. 
No, I, the biggest problem is artificial intelligence, but uh, uh, which is another episode actually, because <laughs> yeah. I want to so dive I, into I, that with you. But. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I, I call it sentient technology. So all of the sentient technologies that go out, uh, you know, that once are released beyond their developer are out of control. So you know, artificial intelligence is definitely on top of that list. I think from a human existence point of view, uh, I think stress is the top. Uh, is the top issue. It's the top issue. So do you imagine if, 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 I mean, I always say, if everyone was just kinder to one person, if everyone was just kinder just to one person, the world would be a much different place than it is right now. Everyone's just sole responsibility was to be kinder to one person. Didn't matter who it was. Well, I, I would tell you openly, it's, you know, if you think about it, uh, even in a more, if you think about what goes around, comes around, I think that's a more uh, systemic way of just kinder to one person. So so if, if you ask me, hmm, I'm going to host you on my podcast uh, soon, right? And I'd love for you to be present fully and tell me all of your stories and, you know, talk about the documentary and so on and so forth. So I'm present with you and I'm telling you all my stories and talking about everything that I falsely or rightly no okay treating you the way i would love to be treated when when you're on my podcast is the shortest path to a happier humanity it's as simple as that okay if each and every one of us simply said if i were in their place how would i like to be treated and then ask yourself why am i treating them differently and i'll tell you why it's one of the things that really bothered me about our world today is that we because we put in legal systems in place, okay, the minute it's legal, it doesn't anymore matter if it's ethical or kind. Mm -hmm. I think that's the, the that is the modern world that we've created, which is a really wrong place to be. And, and I give simple examples and and complex examples if you want. But the simplest example is I have uh, moved to a new place, wonderful, a little further away from the city, if you want. And it's a new apartment building. And so accordingly, everyone is changing whatever crappy uh, decoration the mug put in place. Okay? Uh, right, rightly so, I would agree. Hmm? So those people are rightly motivated by the mug's cheap uh, approach to things. I'm talking about the mug because I don't like them. Okay. Even though, even though I live there. Uh, and And then they take permission from the property management office. So they've done the right thing. They uh, hire, um, you know, people and pay for contractors and pay for them. And those contractors are supposed to finish within a specific amount of time. Nothing illegal there, right? But twice uh, during the process of the last 45 days, my upstairs neighbor who has been remodeling, uh, twice I had visitors coming over from across the world costing me twenty, thirty thousand dollars uh, to record an episode that is important or some work that is important. And I would ask for a two hours of silence to finish my recording, okay? Legally, I'm not, I don't have the right to ask for this. Mm -hmm. But ethically, in a world where I know that one day I will be remodeling when his mother-in-law is sick in the bedroom, okay? Ethically, it would be nice if he would say, okay, sure, from two to four, it's fine, right? That's not what's happening. So legal and ethical are separated. Legal and ethical are separated in every influencer on the internet 
that puts out whatever they uh, want to say out there, create hate, mm-hmm. create anger, do whatever they feel like, legally it's okay. It's their point of view, freedom of expression, mm-hmm. okay? Ethically, it's not right, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, that last video about His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, which you can have whatever view you have on it, but it's a, sh- a tiny clip of a, s- a 30 minutes video edited in a specific way that is definitely triggered to create a negative emotion. If you saw other neg- other other 30 second clips of the video, uh, you know, they may trigger very positive emotions, but legally everyone has the right to edit that and put it out there. Ethically, it's not, okay? Legally, everyone is allowed to write a piece of AI code and put it on the internet. Ethically, it's not, mm-hmm. okay? And I think the reality is that as as humanity evolved into where we are today, we came to a point where, you know, remember, uh, I think it's, it was Voltaire, but, uh, but it's Spider-Man made it famous, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. I think the biggest challenge we have with our world today is that power has been disconnected from responsibility. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry has power today. Everyone can influence the life of those around them, and very few people assume the responsibility. And that's creating a world that's actually quite challenging for most of us. Each and every one of us is stressing everyone else around us, okay? And as you rightly said, but it's my right, okay? It's my right to, you know, uh, um, refuse for you to come into the lane in front of me because I am in a rush. And yes, you're signaling, but I'm in the lane, right? But tomorrow you're going to be the one that's signaling. And I don't understand why humanity, because of stress, has allowed itself to be where it is. As we come to the end of this episode, I, I, I literally would like to steal you for an afternoon and record a load more content about this. And I know that you're very Thank you're you. careful with your time, but it, every time I've met you, every time I talk to you, it's uh, it's enlightening, it's interesting. You're, you've got a good heart. I do. I thank you for saying that. You, I really do. You, you really do. You're one of those. You want. You're one of life's good guys, and you've experienced enough to to know what that is. Thank you. And I'm I'm delighted that we're about to embark on doing some work together as well with Unstressable, and that's that's exciting because the whole team get to get to know you better and uh, get it's, to see what I see. Such a pleasure. I mean, honestly, it's it's a it's a it's a privilege to be working with a business person that's capable as you, but also who has a good heart as you to spread the message that this that is this important i think uh, i think we have we we're we need to be more active all of us i think uh, th- this world is slightly spinning out of control it really needs all of us with capabilities to highlight issues like human trafficking to highlight issues like how we're forgetting ethics in in you know, in light of the legal frameworks, to highlight issues around how we're allowing stress to kill all of us, and and I really and honestly believe that uh, anyone of us has the power to make a difference, but most of us don't have the interest to stop for a second and do something other than watch Game of Thrones and just use the time to make a slightly better place. Mm. It's quite shocking because, in my personal point of view, I think we're. You know, have you ever played Tetris? Yes. You know that last few blocks, you know, when the game starts to speed up and speed up and speed up? 
and and I I feel that we're getting to that point. Not in, not to make the anyone feels feel pessimistic, but it is definitely a call to action. Okay, our way of life that got us here, which is all about more, 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 more. I don't think is sustainable. I think our way of life should be a little more in nature, a little more calm and quiet, a little more happiness, a little less stress, a little more compassion, mm. honestly. And, 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 you know, in a very interesting way, if you're going to do this selfishly, just to make yourself feel better, and because you know that if you make other people's lives better, it will, it's going to reflect back on you, and it's going to cost you a tiny little bit of all that you're running around to striving for, it's a worthwhile investment. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Mo, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you.